God put on my heart to do a study entitled Wrestling with God um, because that's what we've all been doing you know, the last two weeks is really wrestling with the Lord. So I want you to turn to John chapter 12, mark your place there, and then make your way to Genesis 32. Okay, So John chapter 12, mark your place there, and uh, we're going to start off in Genesis chapter 32. And I'm going to pray one more time here for our time in the Word. God, we we just love you. We know, Lord, that you are a good, good Father. And so, Lord, today, as we as a church family get some bittersweet news, we turn our hearts to you. And we invite you by your Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 32, verse 22, it says, And he arose that night and took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. And he took them and he sent them over the brook And sent them over what he had. And then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled or wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Pause there and give me your attention. Have you ever wrestled with God? How many of you have ever wrestled with God? Okay. I have wrestled with God many, many times. And now as a, as a guy who has had two hip replacements, one in both hips, <laughs> this, this passage resonates with me um, in more ways than one. But I resonate with it really because I know what it's like to wrestle with God. And wrestling with God and his direction and will for our lives can really be a normal part of the Christian experience. And I can honestly say that Tyler and I have both been doing a bit of that over these last two weeks. We've been wrestling with God. It's like, Lord, does he, should he stay or should he go? Lord, what are you doing? Tyler and his family have been wrestling with God and his calling and his leading for their family. This has been really, really painful. 
really, really hard. Our leadership team has been wrestling with God and just trying to, you know, wrestle with God. What, what, what are you doing here? What's your will? And then when it became apparent of just like, okay, this is how God is leading. What's, what's your will for our student ministries? And it's interesting that in the pages of Scripture, we read of men who have wrestled with God. And today I want to briefly consider a few of them. And then eventually we're going to get to John chapter 12, where we actually see Jesus in his humanity wrestling with the will of his Father. But the, th- the reason why I want us to see Jesus, because Jesus really shows us the proper way to wrestle with God. But we're starting today with Jacob because Jacob is the first person in the Bible that we actually witness literally wrestling with God. He, he gets into this wrestling match with God, if you would. And Jacob is an interesting guy in the Bible because prior to this moment in Genesis 32, he has this reputation for being a con artist and a swindler. A guy who was really good at taking advantage of situations and people to his own profit. And when we find him here in Genesis chapter 32, he is on the run. He has burned every single bridge in his life, including one with his brother Esau, whom he had ripped off in a major fashion and and. Esau is on his way toward Jacob with 400 men, and they're not coming for a party. They've got vengeance in mind. And this is where we find Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. One night, being unable to sleep... And when you've got two wives and two, you know, mistresses and 11 kids, no wonder, you know, he couldn't uh, sleep. But he's out for a midnight walk when he encounters a man. That's really God. This is one of those times in Scripture that theologians would call a theophany or a Christophany. It's an appearance of Jesus in a bodily form in the Old Testament prior to his incarnation. And what happens is as, you know, it's nighttime and Jacob comes upon this this man and they start wrestling. This wrestling match ensues and they're wrestling all night long. And Jacob has no idea that this is the Lord. And in some ways, this is Jacob's conversion moment. And I think most of us, in a similar way, in prior to coming to Jesus, we've had our moments. We've had our months. Some of us, we've had our years of wrestling with the Lord before we finally surrendered to him. But I have to say that Jacob wrestling with the Lord is like me wrestling with my grandson, Josiah. You see, when, when, Jake, when Josiah and I wrestle, I will let Josiah think that he's winning just to keep him interested and also to wear him out. He's six years old, and that little kid has so much energy. And so when he comes over our house to spend the night, we will wrestle, and, and I'll literally, I mean, I'll let, it, I'll let it go on. And plus, he's got the most incredible laugh, and we just have so much fun as he's laughing there. But, I, but I'm trying to get him worn out, so he'll go to bed. 
So God will let us wrestle, not, not because he's playing with us. He's not doing that. He'll, he'll let us wrestle because he's wanting to take us somewhere. And the place he's wanting to take us is to the end of ourselves. He wants to get us to the end of ourselves. And he does that with every single one of us in bringing us to Jesus. You see, we can wrestle with God by resisting him. Sometimes that comes in the form of running from him or running from his will. But, but I hope you know, you, you can't run from God. You know that, right? I mean, let's say you're like, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to get away from God. And you go down to Mexico. And the minute that you open up the Airbnb you rented there and you walk in, God's there going, surprise. <laughs> you can't wrestle from him or you can't run from him. He's there. Because he loves you. The psalmist David, who definitely had his moments of wrestling with God, wrote these words in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David said, where can I go? And the answer is nowhere. We wrestle with God or God's will by, by seeking to run from him, resisting him, at times being stubborn. And so God will let us wrestle with him until we surrender. Or if we are being stubborn like Jacob, he'll let us wrestle with him until that moment comes where he breaks us. And so Jacob is wrestling all night with the Lord. He thinks he's gaining ground. This was probably a great experience, in a sense, for Jacob, because it was literally allowing him to get all of his stress and frustration out as he's wrestling. But then God says, hey, let me show you how insignificant you really are. And like with his pinky, he touches Jacob's hip, and it gets thrown out of socket which is really painful. But I love this about Jacob. It tells us here that he's still holding on. His hips out. He's like, got a hold of the Lord and he's still holding on. He's like, I'm not going to let you go. He's got a death grip on the Lord. But now Jacob realizes this isn't a man. This is God. And what he says is, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And this is a principle that we see throughout the Bible, is that God always responds in a positive way to the desperate heart. And Jacob here in this moment, he is desperate. And so God asked Jacob a question. He asked him, what is your name? Now let me ask you this. Did God know what Jacob's name was? Did God know who he was wrestling with? Absolutely. So why does he ask him, what, what is your name? Well, let me ask you this. When, when God, after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, and remember they, they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed and they went and hid themselves you know, in the bushes and, and God comes in the garden going, Adam, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? Yes. So why does he call out to him? Because God was looking for confession. He wanted Adam to confess. 
Why does God ask Jacob his name? Because God was seeking a confession from Jacob because Jacob's name really symbolized who he was. His name means heel catcher because Jacob was a twin, but Jacob came out second. And when he came out of the womb, his hand, so his brother Esau comes out and there's a hand attached to Esau's foot. It's Jacob's hand, like he's trying to pull Esau back in the womb so he can get out first. And his parents are like, oh, that's so so cute. We'll call him heel catcher. That's what the name Jacob means. But that name came to mean supplanter. One who seeks to take things from others. And that's the kind of man that Jacob became. So that's why God is asking him what his name is, is he's looking for a confession for Jacob to say, this is who I am. This is who I have been. And so Jacob says, my name is Jacob. And then the Lord says, look at verse 28 again. And he said to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, God in this moment changes his name from Jacob to Israel, and the name Israel means governed by God. And that's what God is seeking to do with every single one of us, to move us from being self-governed to being God-governed, to move us from that place where we have self on the throne to God on the throne, And I want you to note that if you have been wrestling with God today, that's the battle. The battle that you are in, the thing that you are wrestling with is your kingdom or his kingdom. And Jacob finally becomes this man in this moment, in this battle and in his breaking where he goes from being this man who is is seeking to do everything on his own to a man who would be governed by God. And everything changes in his life from this point forward. Relationships are restored. And he is blessed on so many fronts. And in so many levels. Oh, he'd still have his moments of, of heartache, if you know the story of Joseph. But, but his life from here was, was so blessed. Someone asked me on Thursday, hey, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I said, I'm preaching on the subject of wrestling with God. And he said to me, that's a good one. But this is what I've learned is is that I never win. Actually, that's not true. I want you to think about this. When we wrestle with God to the point where we either surrender or are broken and have to surrender, we totally win. Because God gets all of us, and we get all of him. That's when Jacob becomes Israel. That's when the blessings begin to happen to him. And this is why God says that you have wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob totally wins. His life is transformed. And the Bible is littered with examples of men who have wrestled with God. Elijah. Elijah ran from God. He's wrestling with his calling. He's wrestling in fear after he finds out that Queen Jezebel is wanting to kill him. 
after his big showdown. I mean, he goes up against 450 prophets of Baal, has this great victory, and then he's running from the queen, you know, like, like he's all afraid. And, and it's God wrestles with him. That time, Elijah literally said, God, just, just kill me, please. But God, in his patience, wrestles with his prophet to get him back on track. We all know the story of Jonah. Jonah wrestled with God's direction as well. And God pursued him because he loved him. God pursues Jonah, has a big fish swallow him up. And Jonah's story teaches us that that God will go to great lengths to get you where he wants you to go. Not because he needs you or he needs me, but he wants to bless you. And he invites us to be a part of this story that he's writing. David wrestled with God many times. He had difficult years, like 15 difficult years, being on the run, hiding out from crazy King Saul who was after his life. And, and David's wrestling took form, or took form of, of him asking questions like, God, how come? And God, how long? And how long, Lord, will the, the wicked prosper? And David was basically in his wrestling saying, God, this is not fair. This isn't what I signed up for. And God patiently wrestled with David in making him a man after his own heart. Have you been wrestling with God? Have you been running from God? Have you been asking questions of God, Lord, how come and why? And have you been resisting? Listen, he wrestles with you rather than just giving up on you because he loves you. So can I encourage you today, stop wrestling and surrender. Stop being a Jacob and become an Israel, a person governed by God. Because when you do that, what you're doing is you are getting in line with God's plan for your life. And his plan for your life, it's a good one. It's a good plan. And it's better than yours. <laughs> There's a lot of people in the Bible we see who wrestle with God. But the one who shows us really how to wrestle with God in the right way is Jesus. So I'd like you to turn to John chapter 12, if you would. John chapter 12. We find Jesus at this point. This is the middle of the Passover week. This is just days before he's going to go to the cross. And we read in verse 20, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. And then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now pause right there. There's a a truth in this passage that I don't want you to miss. A little side truth. These Greek men are coming to the feast to worship God. But in the midst of being there, they have this desire to see Jesus. And you know what? That is really what the heart of true worship is all about, is seeing Jesus. 
It's seeing the Lord. And a good worship leader, a worship leader is really doing a great job when they point us upwards so that we see Jesus. Worship, my friends, is not about us, but it's about the one who is greater than us. And we are so blessed here at this church to have amazing worship leaders who do that very, very well, aren't we? They point us to Jesus. And we should be very thankful for that. So these Greek guys who came to worship at the feast come to Philip and say, we want to see Jesus. Verse 22 says, and Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now, what's interesting here, the response that Jesus gives to them is sort of weird. It's almost like he doesn't even hear the question, but we know that he does. But look at verse 23. It says, but Jesus answered them saying, I would love to meet these Greek guys. That's what you would think he would say. But he doesn't say that. He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now that's a significant statement because this is the first time ever in the ministry of Jesus where he said that. There were many, many times when the crowds were wanting to make him king, where they were wanting to glorify him, that he always responded, it's not time for the Son of Man to be glorified. But here in this moment, it's different. He says, now is the time. And then he gives this very interesting analogy. Look at verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So Jesus is giving us here a illustration from nature, that of a seed that's being planted. And in order for that seed to produce, to really become what it was created to be, it has to die. That's what the planting represents, being planted in the dirt. And what Jesus is doing here is he's talking about his own death. He's talking about his own sacrifice. That this is where his glory was really going to be seen, is that it would be seen at the cross. But Jesus is not just giving us an illustration here. Don't miss this. He's also giving us an example. Look at verse 25. Example for all of us to follow. He says that he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now, this is something that Jesus really, we see him teaching all the time. This is something that is seen in every single gospel. Let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus said this, And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a reoccurring theme in the teaching of Jesus, this calling to take up the cross. What does the cross represent for us? You know, some people, I'll hear some guys sometimes, you know, they'll say, or some gals sometimes, you know, my mother-in-law, she's my cross, you know. My boss, he's my cross. No, 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 listen. Your cross is not your burden. The cross was an instrument of death that brought life to others. That's what the cross represents for us. 
So the cross is this instrument of death where we die so someone else can live. So someone else can be blessed. It's dying to self. It's surrendering to God. And what Jesus is doing, he's saying, and it's being illustrated by this seed. So let's go back to the analogy of the seed for a moment. He says, if the seed remains alone, if it doesn't get buried, it doesn't bring forth any fruit. You can take a peach seed today, go buy yourself a peach at the market, eat it, take that seed, set it on your kitchen countertop, and let it sit there for months. It's not going to do anything. It's just going to look like a grody old seed sitting on your thing. No, in order for that seed to become what it was meant to be, it has to be buried. So let's consider for a moment. How are we like seeds? Well, a seed is small and insignificant in and of itself, but there's life in it. That seed has the potential of becoming a tree or a beautiful rose bush that produces beautiful rose flowers. The seed is small and insignificant, but it has life in it. And you and I are small and insignificant in and of ourselves, but there's life in us. The life of God is in us because of his Holy Spirit. Now, if the life of that seed is going to be manifested, it has to be buried. It has to be planted. So the planting is a symbol of death and burial. And the same thing holds true for us. If the life of the Lord is going to be manifested from our lives, we need to be planted and buried. In other words, there's a death that has to take place in our lives. Death to self, death to my plan, death to my ambition, death to my desires, and the aligning of myself with his plan. Now think for a moment if that seed, let's just pretend, let's say it could talk. I think it would scream. I don't like it down here. I don't like being in this dirt. This is cold. There's these giant worms crawling around me. And then when you pour that water on me, oh, man, you know, it would scream in protest. And how often do we do that? Lord, I don't like this, this being buried thing. But in order for the life in the seed to come forth, all of that is necessary. Listen, church, God has placed his life into you through his Holy Spirit. But in order for him to get that life out of you, you need to be buried. You need to die to self. Notice Jesus said, if the seed remains alone, there's no fruit. But a lot of us, we like being alone, don't we? We like, that's our natural tendency. We want to stay to ourselves. We want to isolate. We we, want to play it safe. But that's not the example of Jesus. Example of Jesus was to love. It was to sacrifice. It was to reach out. It wasn't to isolate himself, but it was to make himself vulnerable by giving his life for others. So notice the contrast that Jesus gives in this analogy. Loneliness or fruitfulness. Losing your life or keeping your life. Serving self or serving Christ. Pleasing self or receiving honor from God. But this is the very thing that we wrestle with all the time, isn't it? 
death to self. Lord, I don't want to be buried. Lord, I, I, I don't want to be unseen. I don't want to surrender my will and my dreams. Lord, I have a good plan for my life, and I just need you to get on board with it. Now, you've probably never, ever said that blatantly out loud, but I bet you you've thought it a few times. I have. The last couple weeks, I was like, Lord, I have a good plan for Tyler. I really do. Lord, come on. But God's plan is always better than our plan. And so in those times that I... (laughs) I'm saying to God, God, I've got this plan. The Lord will say to me, Rob, I've got a better one. Will you trust me? And then I have to say, okay, Lord, you can bury me. I'll die to my plan. I'll die to my desires. I'll die to my dreams. I'll die to my rights because I truly believe that you are a good, good father. And you've got a better plan. So that's what Jesus is showing us here. He's showing us how to wrestle in the right way. Verse 27 is key. Notice he says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What we have here is Jesus is wrestling in his humanity. He's not wrestling with him, with self like we do, but he's wrestling in his soul. And he says, my soul, my spirit is troubled. Why is he wrestling in his soul? He's wrestling because he knows what he's about to go through. He knows that he would be beaten, that he was about to be bruised and battered. He he knows that he was going to be forsaken by everyone, but most of all, this is where he was wrestling with the most, is he knows that he's about to experience what it was like to be separated from his father as he would go to the cross, and the Bible says that all the sin of the world, past, present, and future, would be placed upon him, that he literally would become sin for us. That he would experience that separation from the father, and on that cross he cries out, my God... My God, why have you forsaken me? And during that whole scene, the father watches in silence and doesn't respond. Because long ago, the father and the son agreed together of this plan that this is how lost humanity would be saved. I'm going to give my life. But Jesus felt all that, and he knew that was coming. So he's wrestling in his humanity. He's wrestling in his soul. So what can we learn here from Jesus about how to wrestle in the right way? Notice what Jesus' aim was and what his focus was. He says, Father, verse 20 again, I know I have come for this purpose, for this hour. He's saying, I know this is my purpose. I know this is my hour. And so that that was his ultimate surrender. And then we see in the next line his ultimate motivation when he says, Father, glorify your name. This is what Jesus is teaching us. Jesus made a choice to seek the Father's glory and the Father's will above his own comfort. And that's a choice that every single man and every single woman has to make. 
the choice between loving myself or loving God. Glorifying myself or glorifying God. You see, you can't have it both ways. Jesus chose God's glory over his own comfort. And what's interesting is a couple days later, a day or so after this moment in John 12, in the, like the, the first part of the, the Passover week, Jesus is wrestling again with the exact same thing. This time, it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I love that because this wasn't a one and done for Jesus. And I want you to note that. And the night before he's going to the cross, he's in the garden. This time he's wrestling again. He's sweating so intensely that out of his pores is, is becoming, his blood's coming out. And he says, not once, not twice, but three times, Father, let this cup pass from me. In other words, God, if there's another way to do this than going to the cross, let's do it. But then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. That's the key. That's what he's showing us. It's intense. It's a struggle. But he says, this is what I'm about, Don. I'm all about, Lord, your glory, your will. And so that's the key to wrestling with God in the right way. It's saying, Lord, I want your will above my will. I want your way, not my way. I want your glory, not my glory. I want your plan, not my plan. So I surrender to you and I trust you. And so Jesus chose God's glory over his own comfort. By saying, Father, glorify your name. And then look at the end of verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by heard it and said that it thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. Our beloved friends, Tyler and his family, are choosing the glory of God over their desire to stay here. Over what in many ways is comfortable. Going to a new place is hard. It's hard. They've established a lot of friendships here. A lot of relationships here. We, we are a family. Our leadership team in choosing God's glory over our desire are releasing Tyler. We're sending Tyler and his family it would have been easy to try to finagle a way to keep them here. And I'll be honest with you, it was tempting. It was tempting to try to convince them that this isn't God's will, but we know that it is. That God's doing something. So we need to release them and descend them so that God's glory in them will be further revealed in their life. And I think God has some big, big things in store for them. Some incredible opportunities that he didn't even go into um, up there. So, family time. You see, it's important that we do this, and I wanted him you know, to share, and God put this message on my heart, because we go through this together as a church family. It's always hard when somebody, the Lord sends somebody out from us, especially when it's so sudden like this. But here's the thing. Can I encourage you, can I encourage us to be in Israel, that we might be people who are governed by God? 
that we would choose God's glory over our preference, that we would choose God's glory over our plan. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we just uh, thank you for this illustration and what we see, Lord, in Jesus. And God, as we, in our moments, and those who right now in this place maybe have been wrestling with you, Lord, I pray that today they would make that decision to choose you, your glory, your plan, your way. Lord, I pray for somebody, anybody here that maybe doesn't know you, that today in this moment, they, they right now would say, Lord, I'm, I'm done running, I'm done resisting. I give my life to you. Forgive me of my sins. And so, Lord, we love you. We praise you. We give our hearts to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.